Anyone, if you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room, little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible, we would invite you to take that one home. The reason for that is incredibly simple. We believe that God uses his word, the scriptures, the Bible, whatever title you want to give to it. We believe that he uses it for his purposes, including and not limited to convicting us of sin, drawing us to repentance, but most importantly of all, revealing himself to us. And we want you to know God. And so if you don't have a Bible of your very own, you're at a disadvantage in knowing God. And so we can fix that this morning. Take that one home if you need one. Jeremiah chapter 1. So we're in a series that we're calling the story of God. Uh, The idea behind all of it is incredibly simple, or at least I think it's simple. We believe that the entire Bible is about Jesus. All right, full stop. Like, not, but that, that's, that's a bold statement. Like, like, okay, but what does that mean? Like, does that just mean, like, the stuff that talks about him in the New Testament? Because, like, that's totally about him. It, like, the first four books of the, of the New Testament, like, tell the story of his life. And then everybody after that is, like, talking about him, always referring back to him. And then there's also these messianic prophecies. Like, we're going to look at Jeremiah today. He's talking about a Messiah to come. That's surely about Jesus. But what about everything else? What about the story of Adam? What about the story of Noah? What about the story of Samson and Delilah? How is that about Jesus? Well, we believe... That if you read their stories correctly, you walk away from their stories thoroughly impressed with the Jesus over all of it. That he is the star of the show that we need to be seeing in their stories. And so uh, instead of just making that claim, we're, we're showing our work here. We're proving our thesis all this series long. And, and so we're answering the question, how does their story, each individual character in the Bible, or at least the major ones, how does their story point us to the much larger and much more beautiful story of God? How does their story point us to Jesus? But here's the deal. That can feel like it's too big of a question, so we, we're breaking it down into smaller chunks. That question can feel daunting, so we broke it into four smaller questions. How was this person raised up? What made this person a seemingly bad choice? What did God do to redeem them? And how does their story preach the gospel? I, it's my opinion that if we answer those four questions faithfully, correctly, we position and posture ourselves in such a way that the, the much larger story of God question is actually quite simple to answer. All right, here's the deal. I'm going to throw you a curveball today, so be watching it. Right? It'll be fun. Who's our character for the day? Jeremiah. Jeremiah. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, to give you a hope and a future. We're talking about life verses here, people. Let's round out his profile. An untimely prophet? Hmm? Question mark. A doubting prophet? And a fortified prophet? You ready to get into question number one? Good. Chapter 1, verse 1 of the book of Jeremiah. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, and until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. <laughs> So we have here another one of these weeks where we, have, where we kick things off with this incredibly complicated and seemingly really, really long paragraph with all this information in it, right? So what do we do? Well, it's further complicated by the fact that we kind of played with the timeline two weeks ago when JB talked about Daniel, all right? Daniel, uh, his life plays out in, in a time period that we refer to as the Babylonian captivity, all right? And that's an incredibly dark time in the history of Judah. It's an incredibly dark time in the history of God's people. But here's the deal. 
at the beginning of Jeremiah's story, none of that has happened yet. Not a bit. It's going to happen at the very, very end of his life. You may notice at the bottom, uh, the very last verse, it says, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. So that's the, the Babylonian captivity that we're talking about. So we, we looked at Daniel's story a couple of weeks ago, but just rewind for a second and know that, that Jeremiah hasn't experienced any of that stuff yet. Jeremiah's story starts about 40 years or so before all of that goes down. He's still around when it does, but he, he predates it a little bit. All right? uh, now, I'm sure that all of you are totally brushed up on your Old Testament history, but for those of you who aren't, let me give you a refresher. The golden age of the kingdom of Israel, King Saul, King David, King Solomon, ended with King Solomon. His son ascends to the throne, does something dumb on the first weekend, and the kingdom immediately splits into two. That's basically how the story goes. All right? And so now you have the, the northern kingdom called Israel, and the, divi- or the, not the, divided, the southern kingdom called Judah. And they each have their own histories, and they each have their own kings. And so uh, we, we, uh, we've spent a lot of time talking about this period uh, called the divided kingdom, but we spent most of our time talking about the northern kingdom, right? All right? Uh, we, uh, the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, only lasted about 200-ish years, they were just an absolute train wreck. One sinful king after the next, and they always seemed to get more and more sinful as they went until God finally judges them for their sin by raising up the Assyrian Empire to come in and wipe them out. Just completely annihilates the northern kingdom, and the northern kingdom is no more. A couple weeks ago, we looked at, maybe about a month ago now, we looked at Isaiah. And Isaiah was a prophet to the southern kingdom as the northern kingdom was falling apart and being overthrown. It's been about a hundred years since Isaiah by this point in the story. So the northern kingdom kind of got their comeuppance, if you want to call it that. God dealt with their sin and, and things have, well, they've been a slower decline. In the, the southern kingdom, they, they still had their sin, they still had their junk, but they weren't as bad per se. Because every once in a while, they would have this really, really good king who would steer the nation back towards righteousness for a little while. And one of those kings was this guy right here that we see, King Josiah. Judah's decline was a little more gradual. But then you got kings like Josiah, and Josiah is... This incredibly special king for a couple of reasons. Josiah was a king about 100 years, like I said, after the, the, the time of, of the fall of the northern kingdom, after the time of Isaiah. Josiah is special for a couple of reasons. One, because he ascended to the throne at the age of eight. Those of you who have had an eight-year-old before know just how dumb an idea that is, right? <laughs> like, think through what your kid was like at eight years old and then put a kingdom in their hands. How do you think that's going? probably be really fun for the first week, right? After that, not so much. But God, but God blesses it. Because the other thing about Josiah that's incredibly special is that at the age of 16, God completely captures his heart. And he leads the nation of Judah in this unparalleled revival. Everybody's repenting of sin and getting saved. It touches every domain of society. Like, everybody's going, you know what? We really need to be better at this, at this righteousness stuff. And every domain of society begins to uh, uh, 
reform and begins to clean up their act, if you want to call it that. And things go very, very, hear me, very well under the reign of the righteous king, Josiah. Josiah reigns for about 20 years or so after that revival begins to start. And so it's a really good 20 years. We're told here that Jeremiah is raised up during the reign of Josiah. In the 13th year, it tells us, of Josiah. So if he started that revival in year 8, it means things have been kind of getting better for a little while. Things are really healthy right now. We're told that Jeremiah is serving as a priest in a little town outside of Jerusalem called Anathoth. That's in verse 1. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth. Anathoth is a little town outside of Jerusalem. And so Jeremiah has got this, this quiet ministry gig in a quiet town. In all likelihood, he's a teenager during this time period. And so and it's in this incredibly high watermark spiritually for the nation of Judah. In fact, it could easily be described as the high watermark spiritually for the 300 or so year history of Judah. Like that's the time they point to and say, things went really well then. They're living in the good days. But if you know your Bible well, then you know that God doesn't tend to raise up prophets during the good days. So what gives? Well, to answer that question faithfully, we need to pause on question number one, call a little time out, and go and answer questions number two and three for a second, and then come back to question number one. You remember how I told you I was going to give you a curveball? That's the curveball. So let's take a break from question number one for a second and answer question number two. What made Jeremiah a seemingly bad choice? Well, keep reading in verse four. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. Okay, so like Daniel a couple weeks ago, and like Isaiah before him, there's not really much of anything in in Jeremiah's life that we can point to and go, Man, that guy is a wreck. Like, there's, there's no heinous sin in his life. He, I mean, you want to compare him to guys like David? Like, David was a murderer and an adulterer. He, he used the, the position of his seat as king to manipulate for personal gain. He, he absolutely did horrible, immoral things as the leader of God's covenant people. Like, like David had some junk. When you compare Jeremiah to guys like David, Jeremiah is looking like a Boy Scout. but we've already talked about this at length throughout this series, Jeremiah doesn't get to compare himself to David. He stands before God alone. And we see here that while while Jeremiah doesn't have any heinous sin, or at least the, the category that we would put into heinous sin, he does have a doubt issue. And I want to slow down intentionally and be very, very clear about this. Doubt in the generic sense, generically speaking, is not a problem. Doubt, generically speaking, is not a problem. So don't hear what I'm not saying. Doubt is not a problem. Wrestling with what you believe is okay. Asking questions is okay. Hear me, guys. God is big enough to handle your questions. Like, you ever thought through that? Like, he's not somehow overwhelmed by the fact that you haven't put the pieces together. That doesn't surprise him. It doesn't worry him. 
He's big enough to handle your questions. It's never been a problem for the sovereign author and creator of the cosmos to go, well, I don't know if he's going to figure this one out. He's okay. And he's there to guide you through. God can handle your doubt, but doubt in the generic sense is not what we see here. Doubt in the generic sense is not what we see here. So what do we see? God gives him a verbal call to go do something, doesn't he? He says, do this. We see God give him a verbal call to go do something, and Jeremiah goes, I don't know. God says, I formed you and I appointed you before there even was a you. I consecrated you. I mean, I, I set you apart for this grand, beautiful, glorious purpose. And Jeremiah goes, hey God, I don't know if you've noticed this, but I'm kind of young here. And I'm not so good with that whole public speaking thing. You obviously must have made a mistake. That's what Jeremiah is saying. Jeremiah goes, I took an assessment and that's not really my gifting. It's not what I feel like I was made for. God tells him verbatim what he wants Jeremiah to do and Jeremiah immediately starts backpedaling. See, at a certain point, church, doubt ceases to be doubt and becomes an arrogant rejection of God's character and his authority. It's not always the same line, but at a certain point in us, we cross that threshold out of doubt and into outright arrogance to believe that we know better than he does. Doubt in and of itself is not a problem, but it can quickly turn into a refusal to listen to the God who's right there in front of you. And that's no longer doubt. That's sin. When it gets to this level, what we're talking about is no longer doubt, it's sin. It's gone beyond the generic, the kind of doubt that Jeremiah is struggling with. That's sin. This is why we make every attempt around here we can to answer people's questions. This is why we offer the Q&A. This is why it's okay for you to pull me or any of our, anybody else in our leadership aside and ask the, the question real quick because we, we want to try to help in that moment. That, that's how you prevent the generic kind of doubt from turning into the I know what you said, but I don't care kind of stuff. That's why we offer that. That's why I hope you take advantage of that. Jeremiah, at this stage of his life, struggles mightily with the sinful version of doubt. No, he may not have a heinous sin in his life. He may not be a murderer. But there is sin. And so the natural question that is raised out of this is, how does God redeem Jeremiah? Well, let's keep reading verse 7. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Okay, so what does God do? He does what he always does. He initiates grace, right? Like, like we've seen this play out over and over and over again throughout the course of this series, right? He initiates cleansing from sin. He initiates a provision for what Jeremiah has been called to do. God initiates grace here. But it's also got some similarities, some incredibly particular similarities between a couple of other stories that we've already looked at throughout the series. 
Uh, it's got similarities to both Moses and Isaiah's story. Do you remember those? In, in Moses' story, he tries to backpedal out of speaking on behalf of God, right? How's that go for him? Does God let him back out? What does God do? He equips him, pushes him forward, right? Moses tried to, to backpedal out, and we learned when we looked at Moses' story that the reason why God picked Moses was precisely because Moses wasn't so good at the public speaking thing. It's almost like God's doing something on purpose there. Isaiah. What happens in Isaiah's story? They both get this vision of God, right? And there's this problem with their lips. There's this problem with their mouth. And, and how is the cleansing and the provision happen? His mouth is touched. God touches both of their mouths as a part of their commissioning. God initiates grace and He initiates cleansing and He initiates provision. God does not care that Jeremiah is young and inexperienced. Hear me, church, that's the reason He's choosing him right now. That's the Reason. God doesn't need Jeremiah to be creative and articulate. Whose words are Jeremiah supposed to speak? What does it say at the end of that line? Behold, I put my words in your mouth. I put my words in your mouth. Okay, so, so follow me here. Needing is the wrong category entirely. God doesn't want Jeremiah to be creative and articulate here. God wants Jeremiah to be obedient. There's a difference. And so if you're the type that's currently wrestling with what God has called you to do, hear me, he wants no less from you. He doesn't need your creativity. He doesn't need your talent. He doesn't need your whatever. He wants your obedience. Will he use those things in a lot of ways? Yeah, often he will. He doesn't need a single one of them. He wants your obedience. Jeremiah's job is not to go figure out the best way to say the things that God would have him say, the best things that God would be happy with. His job is to say whatever God tells him to say. That's Jeremiah's job. God is going to put the words in Jeremiah's mouth. God is the one who equips, not Jeremiah. God is going to redeem Jeremiah by giving him everything he needs, everything he needs to do what God is calling him to do. And in case you're new to the church thing, in case you're new to the Bible, here, here's, here's some news for you. That's how it always works. This isn't a special deal for Jeremiah. It's how God always works. He calls you and equips. He calls you and equips. And sometimes he uses the means he's already provided in you but over and over and over again, he calls and he equips. That's what he does. And it's with this context that we can go back and answer question number one. So you ready to look at it again? How was Jeremiah raised up? Josiah is king. The nation of Judah is doing really great right now. There's revival, quote unquote, all over the place. Everything seems downright wonderful at, a moment, at the moment. So why in the world would God raise up a prophet right now? Well, there's two answers. One, because even really good, godly kings eventually die. And the second answer is that revivals are sometimes only surface deep. 
Revivals are only sometimes surface deep. There are three empires to reckon with during this part of history. Babylon is the small one. It's, it's on the rise, though. It's growing day by day. They're eventually going to be the empire to reckon with. But right now, they're small potatoes. Right? Uh, the other two are Egypt and Assyria. And they're both in the beginning stages of decline. Right? Both of them, uh, though, really would like to assert their dominance over the other so that they can be seen as the big guy on campus. Right? They want to be the big kahuna. Right? And so King Nico II of Egypt gathers his troops and decides he wants to go pick a fight with the nation of Assyria. All right? Got a little map for you. It's a modern day map, but you'll get the idea. Um, I'm going to draw on the screen here. So Egypt is here. That's not Egypt. Egypt is here. All down in here. Okay? Assyria is up in here. Which means if Nico wants to march from Egypt to Assyria, where's he got to go? Through tiny little Judah. And so on his way to go pick a fight with the nation, the empire of Assyria, he's got to march through tiny little Judah. All right? And he does the polite, stately thing to do and asks King Josiah permission to march through their country. And Josiah goes, over my dead body you will. And so Nico obliges him. The nation of Israel fights the nation of Egypt. That is not a fair fight. They don't even break a sweat. There's a battle. Josiah promptly dies in that battle. Nico gets a little warm-up for his boys before the real show. They go off and do their thing. And then marching back home, Nico II sets Judah up as a vassal state of the empire of Egypt. He removes Josiah's eldest son from the throne, sets up another son, a guy named Jehoiakim, to be a puppet king for them. And Jehoiakim doesn't love God at all. And he systematically undoes every single piece of spiritual reform his father put in place. It falls apart just that fast. He undoes everything. The revival falls apart because the guy holding it all together wasn't there anymore to hold it all together. Everything collapses. And I I keep putting the word revival in quotation marks because if it can be undone by a new leader saying, yeah, we're going to go this way instead of that way, then maybe it wasn't actually revival. Right? Like, sure, it made changed some things for the good, and it probably looked pretty impressive to those looking at it from the outside, but it didn't seem to actually change anybody's heart. So maybe revival is not the proper category for it. So why are we talking about this? Well, one, because it's this key moment in the, the history of Judah, God's covenant people. It's also this key moment in the raising up of Jeremiah. But thirdly, we could also argue that it's something that we could, just, we could be just as easily guilty of. Does that make sense? It's possible that, that we could be guilty of this. It, it's entirely possible for us to, to build an impressive church that's only surface deep. And we may be able to do some really cool stuff, but if all it takes is a new leader saying, hey, we're going to go this way instead of that way, and it undoes everything, That's why we, structurally speaking, fight against me or anybody else here being the guy everything revolves around. 
it didn't end well for Josiah and the thing he built. It would be incredibly naive for me to think that it would be any different for me. Right? What a dangerous game to play. So that's why we push back against that. And so we, we've got to be careful here that, that even as we celebrate the good things that God has done, and listen, like we've, we've gotten to celebrate some good things this year. We've seen God do some really good things. But we have to be incredibly careful to press into Him and love Him more than any of those good things. Judah failed to do that. And so everything falls apart just as fastly, just as quickly as it was all put together. And so now, God raising up Jeremiah to be a prophet that speaks to the wickedness and the sin of his nation seems quite appropriate in this season, doesn't it? God's got a plan for Jeremiah. So look at verse 10. God speaking to Jeremiah says this, See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Verse 11, And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see an almond branch. And then the Lord said to me, You have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. Verse 13, Then the word of the Lord came to me a second time saying, What do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. Then the Lord said to me, Out of the north disaster shall be let loose upon all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am calling all the tribes of the kingdoms of the north, declares the Lord, and they shall come, and every one shall set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem, against all its walls, all around, and against all the cities of Judah. Verse 16, And I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil in forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods and worshipped the works of their own hands. But you, dress yourself for work. Arise and say to them, Everything that I command you, do not be dismayed by them, lest I dismay you before them. Verse 18, And behold, I make you this day a fortified city and an iron pillar and a bronze wall against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you for I am with you declares the Lord to deliver you okay so God begins to let Jeremiah see what is to become of the nation of Judah because of their sin he gives them a picture of what's coming and we don't have time to dig deeply into those two visions but basically the general idea is that God's going to keep raising up Babylon and come in from the north and wipe them out he's going to raise up the empire of Babylon and they're eventually going to overthrow the nation of Judah. They will set up thrones in their gates, he tells them. That's not all he tells Jeremiah. He also tells him to dress himself for work. The Hebrew there is literally, gird up your loins. It's time to get to work. Jeremiah has a job to do and it's time to do that job. So what's his job? Jeremiah is to ignore the danger that's in front of him, and just start talking. Just start speaking what God tells him to speak. Say exactly what God tells him to say. He says, do not be dismayed by them. Don't be overwhelmed by the fact that this is dangerous. I will protect you here. Start talking. And God promises to protect him. If Jeremiah does what God tells him to do, he will protect him. He calls him a fortified city, an iron pillar, and a bronze wall. Like any, like any guy in the room wants to be known as a bronze wall, right? Man, those things are resolute. But listen, 
it's not because there's nothing said against it. Those things are known as resolute because even in the midst of hardship, they stand firm, right? It's not because they're unchallenged. It's because they're unpenetrable. What does he say in verse 19? He says, they will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you. For I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. Jeremiah's job is to faithfully carry God's message to God's disobedient people. And how do you think God's disobedient people receive that message? Not well. In fact, Jeremiah spends the next 15 years and the next 40 chapters of his letter preaching to a nation who not only refuses to listen, but continually tries to kill him. God protects him, but nobody likes Jeremiah. Nobody likes Jeremiah, and nobody, no one listens to him. In chapter 20, Jeremiah is beaten and put in stocks for a while. In chapter 36, King Jehoiakim, that second son of Josiah, he burns Jeremiah's scroll containing God's commandments. He just rips it up and burns it in spite, in defiance. Chapter 38, Jeremiah is beaten again pretty severely this time and thrown thrown into a pit full of mud as he's sinking down left to die. Somebody finally has pity on him and rescues him out. Jeremiah is not listened to at all. At all. And God's promise was that if Judah failed to repent, that he would judge them, bring judgment upon them because of their sin. That he would bring an enemy in from the north, right? And he would decimate the city of Jerusalem. And so maybe you don't have much of a, a, a Bible background here today. Hear, hear this. Our God is a promise-keeping God. He promised this would happen if they failed to repent. He's a God who always, 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 always keeps his promises. So that's exactly what he did. He raises up Babylon. This burgeoning empire continues to grow. They overthrow the Assyrians and they become the dominant deal, empire to deal with only over a few short years. And there's some scholarly debate over how many times Babylon attacked the city of Jerusalem. It happened at least twice, but could be as many as five times. All right, it depends on uh, which ancient source documents you want to look at. All right, so at least twice, but maybe as many as five times. And so uh, during the, the first wave of attack, the first time they sacked the city, they carried off all the brightest young adults that they could find. And, and two weeks ago, Jer, uh, JB looked at Daniel, right? Daniel was in that first wave of slaves that were carried off into Babylon. All right? So they, they carried off all these bright young people that, and they wanted to assimilate them into Babylonian culture. That was their, their aim there. They also carted off all the gold relics and, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Vessels, the gold vessels uh, from the temple. And so, you know, when Belshazzar drinks from the cup he's not supposed to drink from and the handwriting on the wall happens, guess where he got that cup from? The first wave of attack where they carted off all the stuff. The, the final wave of attack, whether it was the second one or the fifth one or somewhere in between, the final wave of attack was really because they decided they just they didn't want to toy with them anymore. And so they just leveled the city. They tore down the walls. They burned down the temple. They leveled every important building they, think was, they thought was important. Just decimated the place. And they carried off a large number of other slaves this time. They... They absolutely wiped out Jerusalem. After Jerusalem falls, Jeremiah is forced, literally forced, they drag him, forced to flee to Egypt. 
And Jeremiah spends the rest of his life there prophesying against the Egyptians and writing encouraging letters to the exiles in Babylon. Cute little story, right? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, to give you a hope and a future. So you may be wondering, how in the world is the gospel preached through the life of Jeremiah? And the answer is that Jeremiah preaches the gospel. Literally. He preaches the gospel. Flip over with me to chapter 23 real quick. Jeremiah 23. Didn't Jeremiah live like five to six hundred years before Jesus? Yup. Almost like God's building something really big here, isn't he? Chapter 23, verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Call a time out there. Notice the capital B. It's there for a reason, right? So this is, like I said, happening, it's being written about a hundred-ish years after the days of Isaiah. And Isaiah spends a big chunk of his letter, a very, very long letter, talking about a Messiah to come who's going to be risen up out of the line of David. He's going to be a king out of the kingly line of David. And so you think Jeremiah's readers knew about those, what, Jeremiah, or what Isaiah wrote? You think Jeremiah's readers had that in the back of their head? They very much did so, right? And so he's talking about a branch here, capital B. He's talking about a very loaded thing. All right? There's a king coming. All right? Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and, and righteousness in the land. And in, in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, quote, the Lord is our righteousness. All right, now flip over to chapter 31. Verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother say, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Jeremiah announces the coming of a better, far more righteous shepherd and king. And this great shepherd king is going to change the way that God relates to his people. Forever gone are the days of the old covenant. The days of trying to desperately to, to pretty yourself up on the outside and pretty yourself up in such a way that you could draw near to God, that you could draw near to His presence. We're told that God is going to give us a new heart, one that's made out of flesh instead of the stone ones that we have. We're told that He's going to write the law on our hearts so that we know it inwardly and it changes us from the, outside, or from the inside out rather than trying to force stuff from the outside in. We're told that God is going to change the way that He relates to His people. And what's most amazing about this great amazing shepherd king is that when he gets here there will never ever ever again be a need for a prophet or priest to stand as a mediator in the gap between God and man there will never again be the need for a middleman middleman because God himself will put on flesh and dwell among us 
the great King is coming. Jeremiah declares that God will one day gather his people back to himself and he will bring them protection and he will bring them peace by raising up a king, capital K, out of the line of David. This king will perfectly execute justice and he will perfectly execute wisdom and his name will be called the Lord is our righteousness. This king, Jesus, will be our righteousness for us. Jeremiah suffered greatly at the hands of God's people to bring the very same good news of great joy that we're celebrating this Advent season. Like Jesus, Jeremiah suffered at the hands of the falsely righteous. And like Jesus, he did it all for the sake of bringing God's people back into right relationship with God. Which means that we put in the work this morning to answer our final story of God question, haven't we? One overarching theme to this series... God raised up blank to be a shadow of a more perfect blank to come in Jesus. And so today we learn that God raised up Jeremiah to be a shadow of a more perfect Jeremiah to come in Jesus. See, because unlike Jeremiah, Jesus was not hesitant to take up his responsibility. And unlike Jeremiah, he understood full well what it would cost him as he called people to repent because the kingdom of God was at hand. And unlike Jeremiah, he understood full well what it would cost him as he walked intentionally to the cross. Intentionally to the cross. There was no backpedal in him. It was for the joy set before him that he despised its shame. The story of God is no small deal, church. It is the greatest action of interdrama this world will ever know. He is... It is in process from the beginning of creation to the very end of this world. God is redeeming and saving for one solitary reason. That's that his entire creation will forever see just how good and just how glorious he is. This is the story of God. So how do we respond to God's word this morning? Well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, your response is to to press into God today. I, I know I say that every week, but listen, that's the response. And you do that best by pressing into his word. Consider starting with the book of Jeremiah. It's really long. It's actually, if you just go by word count, it's actually the longest book in the Bible. Have fun. But God has given it to us, given it to us for the express purpose of showing us who he is. Feast on him there. It's not the longest book. It's, it's the best book because you get more of him there than anywhere else. Feast on him there. Go find him. We can take another step into this. Maybe, maybe Jeremiah's story is a lot like yours. Maybe you've got some things that God has called you to and you keep trying to work your way out of that. Keep trying to backpedal because you don't think that God really sees things as well as you see things. You know how I said sin makes you stupid? <laughs> Exhibit, fill in the blank. There comes a point when doubt turns into arrogance. But today's a good day to repent and lean in. So I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We'll have some leaders up front to talk and pray with you. If that would serve you this morning. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, man, I'm glad you chose to hang out with us today. You can respond to God's word too. And you do that by meeting the one that this story is all about. His name is Jesus. I think he's pretty rad. 
You come to know Him by repenting of your sin and trusting Jesus alone for salvation. Jesus pays the debt of our sin through His death on the cross and He calls us to trust in His work on our behalf. And when we do that, He is our righteousness. He gives us His righteousness to call our own so you stand before God as righteous. So maybe today's the day that you're ready to walk in that grace that He's offering to you. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. You come find me if you want to talk about what that next step looks like. Let's all respond to God's word this morning. God, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for Jeremiah and his story. Thank you for being a God who engages even those who try to backpedal. Thank you for being a God who intentionally uses those that don't understand how you work. For being a God who loves the doubter and uses the doubter and protects the doubter. God, thank you for being a God who came to be all that we can never be. And you call us to yourself. And instead of having to, to pretty ourselves up from the outside in, you, you breathe life into us. You, you change us from the inside out. God, for those of us who, who stumble with sin, draw us to yourself. It's what we need. For those of us who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known today? God, save people. In your name we pray. Amen.